Welcome to class. We are exciting, exciting things happening here in Ruth. And uh, as we close in on our last couple of classes, we're in Ruth 4, chapter 4. And we'll be looking at probably verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 today. Uh, Anticipate today being the next to the last class. And then uh, next week, at least my plan, sort of a loose plan, is to come back and do uh, 13 through 22 which uh, moves a little quicker, plus we have the genealogy right at the end. Uh, we can uh, take, a look at, take a look at that. So next week, if I'm not mistaken, we have uh, not only the class plan, but a little get-together afterwards. So that sounds great, wonderful. Well, let's take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation, and then I will open us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we're thankful that even though we've taken one week uh, for Thanksgiving, that we are now back in our text in Ruth, and we're uh, are we're continually aware that the week of Thanksgiving is maybe a little more of a reminder for us to focus on who you are, because really our holiday or our season of thanksgiving is based upon a thanksgiving to you for all that you've provided. And while we mix in some local traditions with turkeys and other things, uh, the true tradition of thanksgiving is the many wonderful things that you have provided, not only for us personally, but for our nation. We're thankful, Father, that one of the things that you've provided is a rich spiritual heritage, a spiritual heritage that we should be mindful of every day. And today, as we study the book of Ruth, it is one of the ways that we we are thankful as we worship through studying the Word of God. We're thankful for this passage of Scripture. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, will guide us as we study it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well... Answer to prayer. Provision. Uh, we're in <clears throat> Ruth 4, and there's a lot of history behind us now. But uh, let me read, since we've been gone for a week, let me read, just to catch us up, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So we know that Boaz has made a commitment to Ruth after she has requested a commitment. And he has come up to uh, Bethlehem. And it says the gate, which is really, as we've studied before, is just the entrance because we really don't know if Bethlehem had a, a gate, so to speak. We wouldn't think of it being a walled gate. Certainly doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, strike with history. But he finds the close relative, and this word is the goel. So we have that word, and we're going to continue to keep it in mind because it is important. Goel. It's based on the word gaal, which means to redeem. And so this really is a participle, which means, say, the one who redeems or redeem. Only spelled it twice, and then spell it the third time. Redeem 
myrrh. So that's the idea. Here, it's just translated close relative, but it is the idea of the Redeemer. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, and we sit down here. And we saw that friend is is probably a good stand-in word for uh, Poloni Almoni, uh, an Italian name, as we like to say. But it just means uh, Mr. So-and-so. We don't... We have... uh, no real better way of, of saying that. So, But if you want to use friend, that's fine. Or come aside, Mr. So-and-so, and sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And then he, Boaz, took ten, uh, took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he has collected now witnesses. We might say it's a, uh, you know, sort of like a, a jury, but it's not that, uh, and it might be something similar to that. Verse three. Then he said to the to the to the close relative, and again, this close relative is our word Goel. So to the redeemer, the one who is uh, in a position to uh, carry out the responsibility of redeeming, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, and we saw that the word "sold" here, it, properly translated, can be sold, but uh, it's also used in many other ways. We all, we've seen that God sold Israel at, when they were disobedient into the hands of uh, Canaanites uh, who were around in the in the vicinity of of the land, and so the, it's often translated "give" as well. And I think we said she has relinquished the responsibility. And I, if you want to translate it "give" or something along those lines, that's fine. But sold doesn't work in the background that we have for the land. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. And again, the word to buy it here means to acquire, but we have to disassociate the uh, financial um, idea yet. I mean, that's, that's down the road. But the acquiring of it means he's going to accept this responsibility. Naomi has given up the responsibility of it. Now he is going to take that responsibility and back. And that's the sense that we see here. So the word acquire, I think, is a little better. Uh, The word actually uh, that we have there means to get or to acquire. And so to buy is reading a little bit into it. Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. And the inhabitants and the elders simply means that it's going to be an official, this is an official a declaration on his part to do this. If you will not, and I'm, now I'm going to sort of this redeem idea, I'm going to take, I'm going to start using the sense of if you will not take that response, if you will take the responsibility, take it. But if you, but if it is, uh, but if you will not take this responsibility, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to take that responsibility, and then I'm next. So what, he, what Boaz is simply trying to tell him is that you're, this responsibility falls first to you. You're first in line. And we've, seen, we've gone over this with the, uh, uh, the uh, responsibility for the land, and the next person in line, as we've seen, would, next, would normally be a brother. We don't have a brother. So we just keep going down the line until we find the very next person who is the closest related to Naomi. And he said, I will take that responsibility. I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, on that day that you take on this responsibility, that you acquire those rights uh, to the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire the same rights... Uh, of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And we've seen what that means. He's simply saying that there's more than one responsibility here. We have, first of all, the responsibility to maintain the land in the family, according to the Mosaic Law. But we now have another responsibility, and that is that Elimelech and his sons have all died childless. And so we now have another responsibility, and that is to maintain the inheritance and the name of 
the, as he describes it here, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And so we have that as well. Now, the uh, close relative, the Redeemer, has thought about this for a second at least, and he, he uh, is in favor of taking the responsibility for the land, but now when there's this additional responsibility, and I think this is, again, we've discussed this in some detail, but when it's presented now that there is additional responsibility and it includes uh, a marriage and children, he is now uh, going to have second thoughts. And so he says in verse 6, the close relative, again, this is the Goel, this is the Redeemer, and that's what this word means. And the Goel said, I cannot take responsibility for it myself, lest I ruin my inheritance. So, and last time we went through all of uh, many of the possibilities here. We don't know precisely how he would ruin his inheritance, but he makes a decision that that is not going to be the best for him. And he says to Boaz, you redeem or take the responsibility of my redemption obligation, my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot take that responsibility. And I think that that captures the idea. There is a redemption obligation here and he is now passing that to Boaz. And I think one of the things that we understand is that Boaz was standing there uh, ready to assume that responsibility. And so uh, since the Redeemer is not the, clo- the uh, you know, brother, it doesn't fall necessarily to him. It's just now who along those lines is going to accept this responsibility. And that's how I prefer to view this. We saw verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging, in other words, business transactions. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a confirmation in Israel. So Boaz has indicated that he now would be willing to accept this responsibility. And so... Uh, the nearer, Poloni Almoni, the nearer relative, is now going to pass that obligation. So he's passing the obligation, and we could also see it as the right of redemption. So it's an obligation, uh, and also maybe another sense of it in the right. And so he's passing that on to Boaz. And by passing the sandal is a way of confirming this transaction. Verse 8, therefore, the close relative, the Goel, again, we're continuing to translate this as a close relative, but it's the Redeemer, said to Boaz, acquire it for yourself, take on this responsibility, I'm giving it to you. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elder and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have acquired this responsibility, I have assumed this responsibility that was Elimelech's, and all that was Chilion's and Malchion's from the hand of Naomi. And I think this is where we left off last time, two weeks ago. And so we now start with this, uh, with verse 9. And so he's saying to all the elders and to all the people, and that simply are the, those who are now observing the proceeding. Ten of them have been specifically selected, but probably by now we may have a larger group. And he says that you are witnesses this day that I have bought or I have acquired. And again, the idea here means to get or to acquire. And I think here it means more or less to assume the responsibility for. I've assumed the responsibility for all that was Elimelech's. And now we also see the children brought up again. So not only did Elimelech die childless, but we also see that Chilion and Malchon have done the same. And he is assuming the responsibility from the hand of Naomi. So the transfer of the sandal here is the final legal gesture, I think we could call it. It's the official court proceeding, the uh, the official court action, so to speak, that the proceedings are complete. And with that, the rights and the responsibility of the redemption as regarding Elimelech's estate, and I think that's how we can describe it, 
has been officially transferred to Boaz, and he was now legally recognized as the Goel. He is the one that now has moved into position to have the obligation, or we could say he has now the right of redemption. So Boaz then turns to the observers and he offers, really, we could say he offers his interpretation of the legal proceedings that they've just witnessed, or he sort of reviews them so that there's no misunderstanding. I think it's almost like reading the minutes from what's just occurred. He says, okay, this is what has just occurred. And so that's what, what Boaz does. He will address, first of all, the inheritance of Elimelech, and that's what he's doing in verse 9, and then he's going to move to the marriage of Ruth in verse 10. And again, let's remember that Naomi is not selling the land. That's not what she's doing. But she's merely relinquishing the rights to hold it in trust, I guess we could say, and then transfer those rights to the Goel. So Naomi is the one who is sort of Responsible, and she's passing that responsibility because she's not in a position to take on the, the obligation. So the actual court proceedings were not about buying or redeeming at this point, not buying or redeeming the land any more than it is going to be buying Ruth. The two are linked here. He's not buying the land, not yet, and he's not buying Ruth. So it's simply taking on the responsibility. It's a transfer of the rights to redeem. And what's beautiful here is we see that Boaz is no longer a Goel. You may remember he made, he emphasized that when Ruth said, will you be the Redeemer? He says, well, I can't be the Redeemer. I am a Redeemer. But he has now changed that uh, status. And so he's no longer a Goel. He is the Goel. He's moved into that position. And that's what he had left, and that's what he sort of, uh, that was his purpose. The actual redemption of the land still lays in the future here, and it would probably involve negotiations between now Boaz and whoever is in possession of the land. But that is what's going to occur now. Also, the narrator uses in verse 9, and I think again in verse 10, the phrase, this day. He uses the phrase twice. It's one word in the Hebrew. And I think he does it for two reasons. I think, first of all, it emphasizes the date of the official proceedings. So this, and that's how Boaz uses it. Boaz says, this day. And it's almost like dating it. The date of this transaction is this day. And so I think it's sort of an official recognition. It's like dating a document. But secondly, it reminds us that Boaz was a man of his word. He acted immediately on his promise to Ruth and also fulfilled Naomi's words that he would not rest until the matter was concluded. And he says, she says, I think at the end of... uh, yeah, the verse, the end of verse three, the, the end of chapter three, verse eighteen. Uh, sit still, sit tight, my dear, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And so, I just, I love the way that the author just sort of ties and binds this this book together. And so, again, we see the word this day, verse ten. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, and let me read through verse 10 through that. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And so the author again has Boaz or here's Boaz using it, or is writing it, putting it in here, so that we see that in this way. Your witnesses when? This day. Signs it. Legal proceedings today. Verse 11, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, Witnesses. We have it translated, We are witnesses. Actually, this is the word witnesses is there. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathoth, and be famous in Bethlehem. 
May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Well, there's a lot in these these verses. There's just a, a just packed all the way through there. And uh, I'm going to see if I can't get to uh, 13 by the end of this class. I think we can. Because I, I can talk fast and you can listen fast. No, we're not going to go fast. No reason to go fast here. As I'm told, there's always next semester. <laughs> there's... No, not semester's not that next semester's not going to happen. I don't think, as far as Ruth is concerned. So we'll just go ahead and finish it up. You know. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, and it says in my translation, it says the widow, the widow of Malchon, and to demonstrate to you that this is, um, you know, we, context always tells us to a certain extent how the word's going to be translated. It's it's simply the word for woman. And if we had the word man here, we would probably translate it in a similar fashion. Uh, We'll see the same word used in the next phrase, in the next phrase, for my wife. It's the same word, but it's the word for woman, and context tells us how we're going to translate it. So, moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, and we could say the, the widow, but it's the wife of Malchon, but she is now a widow. I have acquired, I have assumed the responsibility for my wife. And that's, again, the same word. So, for my, my wife. In order to perpetuate the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off. And that's, that's exactly, uh, that's a very literal translation. And I'm glad they used that there instead of trying to interpret that because we'll get to the interpretation of it. From among his brethren and from his position at the gate. And you are witnesses this day. So next we see that Boaz declares that he has acquired, and I, that's, that's a better way to say this, or assumed the rights to become the protector and the husband of Ruth. So he's talked about the property, and now he's talking about Ruth. So he has both of these responsibilities. His right to be her Goel, and that's what we're seeing here, his to be the redeemer, was first contingent upon gaining the rights to the family property. And so this kind of all works together. This is the first time that we actually know that Ruth was married to Malon. So we have this bit of information. And first, we, we knew that Orpah and, Mal, and uh, Ruth were married to two gents, but we didn't have this, the official connection, but now we do. In Boaz's comments, we see that his primary interest is in Ruth because that's how he starts out. He says, moreover, Ruth. So he's addressing her first. He emphasizes that fact by placing her first in the sentence. And then he gives three reasons for his motivation for what he's going to do. The first thing he says is he's determined to establish Elimelech and Malhlan's Malhlan's name, reputation, and their property. So that's the first thing he addresses. He's determined to establish uh, Elimelech and... Malon, the previous husband of Ruth, he's going to establish their name, their reputation, and their property. Secondly, he wants to prevent the name of the deceased from being cut off from his brothers. That's what he says. He wants to prevent the name of the deceased from being cut off from his brothers. And this means he didn't want the name to disappear from Israel. I'm if I don't act, if somebody doesn't act, the name will be cut off. The name will end right here. And I don't want that to happen. So he says he wants to prevent the name of the deceased from being cut off, meaning to disappear from Israel. Sort of a side note is that while he is acting to keep this name from being from disappearing, uh, sort of there's an analogy here. The, uh, Mr. So-and-so's name really is cut off. I mean, we don't, we never hear of him again. But Boaz's name is going to continue as well as will his sons. Third, the third thing, he was preventing the name from being cut off from the place of the gate, it says. So he was preventing the name from being cut off from the place of the gate. And the place of the gate was in Bethlehem, and it means rep- representation in assemblies and gatherings. 
And so that's what he wants to make sure that the family is still represented in official proceedings in Bethlehem. So we're not losing that official representation. So Boaz was saying that he's guaranteeing Elimelech and Malchon the right to representation in the gathering of the town council. They'd have a voice. And we see that you know Boaz refers to Ruth as the Moabitess. And I don't know if he does that just to make it an official, uh, to identify her officially. But what we do see is that it may have been a problem for Mr. So-and-so, the closer relative, to marry Ruth, the Moabitess. Don't know. But it's not a problem for Boaz. That is not a problem for Boaz. He knows Ruth. In other words, he's had personal contact with her. And I think by now we can sense here that he has affection for her. And I think it's uh, mutual. But he also uh, has identified her as having what we might call a sterling, sterling, a sterling reputation because she has demonstrated humility in what she's done. She's demonstrated that she's honorable. She's demonstrated loyalty. I mean, she has demonstrated all these character traits. And not only that, but she's committed to her new life in Israel. And that's not simply moving to another country and saying, yeah, I think I can stay here. I think I can uh, uh, enjoy the, uh, the new place where I'm staying. No, she's committed herself to Israel, and that means to the God of Israel and to the law of Israel's God. So she has demonstrated much, and she... And that is, and Boaz knows all of this. And so that's what he's saying. So that gets us to, let's see, the end of verse 10. And we're beginning verse 11. Verse 11, I think, really is the, another scene here. We're moving on to another scene. And this is the public's reaction to the outcome of the court proceedings. And in this reaction, we see a lot of history that they bring up for us. And it says in verse 11, And all the people who are at the gate, and again, at the gate here is not just a, a, you know, a location, but it also has a sense of the proceedings. All the ones that are here at this proceedings, the official proceedings that, were, that are going on. And the elders said, Witnesses. It's almost as if they're saying... Yes, you know, we've, we've been sworn in and we testify that we are witnesses. So in the future, if there's any questions, you may find us. Look us up. It's almost as if they're uh, signing their name or having something endorsed like a notary. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, and again, uh, coming into your house, this woman, into your house, the same same. Uh, a word for wife, widow, woman, into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. So the people and the elders announce now a prayer, sort of a blessing on Boaz. And the wish by the witnesses is first of all that Rachel and Leah um, that had provided sons for the progeny of Israel would also sort of be passed along to Ruth so that Ruth would provide sons that would prosper Israel as well. So we see the association. And the prayer is answered in the person of their great-grandson. So we're going to see this when we get to to the genealogy. But the prayer is eventually answered in way down the line in David, who's going to be this great-grandson. So they don't know that, but that's exactly where the prayer is going to be answered. And we see that they, you know, the crowd says, witnesses. What's, what's interesting about this response is that in Hebrew, we don't have a word for yes. I mean, in all of our working through translations, and extra biblical, uh, I probably ought to look to see if we, there's probably one in uh, modern Hebrew. But in ancient Hebrew, we don't have one. So whenever they wanted to say yes, they would often just repeat 
what the person had just said, like here, you're a witness. And they wouldn't say yes, they'd say witnesses. And so that's why they're, they're answering in the affirmative here. There are three parts, really, to the what we might call the well wishes here of the people. First of all, it's being made to Boaz, because as near as we know, Boaz is the only one there. Ruth and Naomi could have been have traveled up there, but they were... We remember they're sitting tight somewhere. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're just sitting, but uh, could very well be that they're there that they are there. But I don't think so. So this, these well wishes are given to Boaz, and the first one is is to Ruth's fertility. I mean, this is all going to be other than for the uh, the land. The land will now somehow remain in the family, but it will have to be passed to somebody else if we don't have a son. So the first. Uh, wish here is that this will be successful, so we are hoping for Ruth's fertility. And that's not an idle prayer or wish. She's been married for ten years. And so we have this prayer. Secondly, for Boaz's future. Because we'll see that. And then in verse 12, we see the third part, when we get to verse 12, that Boaz's house would be like that of Paterez's. And we'll have to take a look and see how how Perez works into this. So, the first part here is the people are offering their well wishes for Boaz. Boaz by offering a prayer of fertility of Ruth's prayer for Ruth's fertility, without really mentioning Ruth's name. First, uh, the way that they do that, it's um, <clears throat> you know. Boaz is saying that he's going to take her in marriage. And so the implication is that that is how we're going to uh, fulfill the responsibility here. And he is now going to, to father that child. That's the idea. And secondly, her fertility, of course, is the most important factor here at the time. The phrase, woman who is coming into your house. I always like to look at some of these phrases. Um, because we could say the woman you're marrying or the woman that who will be your wife, but it says the woman who is coming into your house. And it's a figure of speech uh, used in the Hebrew, and it it's, comes from the ancient tradition or the customary practice of the wedding party proceeding to the house of the groom after the marriage ceremony and formally ushering the bride into the house. And it was sort of a, a, a really a formality. I think now, I don't know if we still carry the bride over the threshold. But in those days, there was, it was a procession. And the procession would be to go to the, the bride's uh, home, the father, and speak to the father and accept the bride and then depart. And then you would go to the groom's house where there's a big party and then finally they are eventually accepted into the home. And so that's the woman who's coming into your home. And that's sort of the, the, the phrase that they would use. The prayer of the people indicates that Ruth has been more than accepted. You know, this is not, well, we'll just see how Ruth works out here. No, she's been accepted. And we can see that because she is compared to Leah, to Rachel and Leah. That's the comparison. And so there's a very strong indication that she is somebody that the community has accepted. The phrase to build a house is, again, a figure of speech that doesn't mean to construct an edifice here. It's not building something, but it means to have progeny, descendants, or to establish a family. And I like the phrase. I like the way it's used because this is the exact same phrase that's used over in Deuteronomy 25.9. And we've been to Deuteronomy 25.9 because in Deuteronomy 25.9, we have the basis for the Leveret marriage. And so, whether they're now stating something official or saying, yes, this is the reason for the marriage, and that is to build a house, we still see, and again, to build a house means to have descendants or to establish a family. We see over in Deuteronomy 25.9 that... This is precisely the language that's used over there. So in Deuteronomy 25.9, we see... (coughs) 
verse 9, this is after, sort of after the proceedings. I'm going to move down. Uh, verse 9 says, Then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. I'm going to jump down to, So it shall be done to the man who will not build up the house of his brother. So, so it shall be done to the man who will not build up his father's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. But anyhow, the phrase, build up his brother's house. And so that's the same phrase that we have here, again, in, uh, in Ruth 4. And I think that it, demonst- it, it sort of shows us that this is the fulfillment of this leveret responsibility. But the other thing it shows us in a larger scale, in a larger vein, is the continuity of the Word of God. There's unity here to the Word of God, to the Bible. This, these books are not just various writings that have been somehow grouped together um, by ancients. And, you know, we look at the Bible and some say, well, there's just, you know, uh, various uh, literature that has been pulled together. I don't think that I don't think we can see that. We see that God, the Holy Spirit, using language that relates these passages, so that we have the continuity of Scripture, the unity of the meaning here, and so that's another principle that I think we can see there. The word "house" is often used in the Bible to mean family or dynasty, as it's used with regard to David. David. It's back there. It's taught in Second Samuel, or it's actually future to us. In Second Samuel seventeen eleven, also in sixteen and nineteen, the word house is used for David, and throne is used for really specifically for his dynasty. But house refers to his family; that his family is going to be perpetuated. In Second Samuel seventeen eleven, sixteen and nineteen, so that's what the word house means here: their family. The people also pray for Boaz, and the meaning here is not really as clear as we might like because he uses two words uh, where it says, and may you prosper. The two words that he uses uh, is, first of all, the word to do or to make. It's the word Hebrew word asah. And then we have the word chayel again. And that is the word that how Boaz was described. Remember, he was described as a man of wealth. That's how it's, descri- uh, it's read in the first part of chapter 2. And I said I think it, it more relates to who he is, uh, that he was uh, an honorable man, that he was virtuous. Then it was referred to uh, Ruth. She was described as being chayl. And now, let me put this on the board for you. the word and now it's described now it's wished that he will be that way that he will do and how in the world we translate this is very difficult and in various translations it is translated uh, in various ways so the two parts of it would be to do or to make and the second part Heil has the idea of strength or power or valor uh, it can be translated wealth or honor, virtue. But we might say to do honorably. You might do honorably. And it can also be act valiantly, uh, perform honorably, show strength. Uh, many of the translations translate it prosper. May you prosper. And that could very well be what it means. It's a little difficult to determine what they're saying, but it has that sense of uh, a valiant, uh, being valiant or honorable. And I think that that also plays in there. The last two lines that we see here uh, in verse 11, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And that is a, an interesting way that Hebrew, Hebrew has that sense of, particularly in Hebrew poetry, of what appears to be repeating the first line. So the, I think the last two lines here have that little bit of a sense of Hebrew poetry in them in that the second line sharpens or heightens the first line. The two locations are very close, with Bethlehem being more well-known than Ephrathah. Uh, 
and Boaz is being wished that he be honorable or valiant in the first phrase, and his name called in the second phrase. So what we see is in the phrase, may you prosper in one location, Ephrathah, and be famous, and the word be famous, and may you be called in Bethlehem. So they are really very parallel. And the second line seems to be reinforcing or enhancing that first line. And may you be famous in Bethlehem. And again, it's the word, may you be called. And in Hebrew, the sense of that means, may you be well known. Then, we see in our last verse here in this uh, this scene, verse 12, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So we can see that there's been a prayer for her fertility, but there's also confidence that that's what's going to happen, because it says that the translation says that the uh, the offspring which the Lord will give you. Okay, so verse thir- verse twelve then. May your house, again we saw that that word means family or descendants, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah. All right. The interesting word here, it says, from this young woman. And the word young woman is now going to be another name that describes Ruth. She's no longer called a... Remember we had the word Shifka. She was a sort of a, a servant girl. She was also later called by Naomi and Alma. She moved up to being uh, at least higher on the rank of someone who is a, a worker or a young woman. But now we've come to this phrase, uh, young woman, which is another one. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But it is still another word used for her. Uh, but the narrator here now references Genesis 38. So he's talking about Genesis 38 and the incident that occurs between Judah and his daughter Tamar. And I think we've, we've been back and we've read that passage in Genesis 38. But just to summarize this, uh, Judah had a son. And he finds a wife for his son, and the son's name was Ur. It was just E-R back in Genesis 38. And the wife he finds for him is Tamar. Tamar. But Ur is not pleasing to the Lord, and he dies. The important thing about it to us is that he dies without an heir. Ur dies without an heir. Something along those lines, if you get the idea here. So the heir, the heir doesn't have an heir. So uh, Judah, and again, this is a passage that allows us to sort of see how the, the Levitt responsibility works. Judah, the father, says to his next son, Onan, it's your responsibility to go into Tamar and now produce an heir for your older brother. And we see in the passage that Onan refuses to produce an heir with her. And it's pretty evident that the reason he doesn't want to do that is that he's the second in line for the inheritance. So why would he now want to duck, so to speak, or not receive the inheritance by producing an heir for his brother. So his brother can continue to have the inheritance ahead of him. So he refuses to do that. And of course, that displeases the Lord, so he dies. So we now have the second brother who has died. And Judah, of course, at that time says, well, Tamar, just wait until my next son is of a marriageable age. And she's, you know, she does that. She is obedient. And through this, we see that she's wearing her widow's garments. That's another reason where we, uh, another way that we pick up uh, how this might have worked. So, but Tamar eventually sees that this is probably not going to work, and she devises a scheme. Uh, we're not recommending this scheme. Uh, not saying that's the best way to do this, but she finds out where Judah is going at one time. He's traveling. 
And so she precedes him, and she disguises herself as a prostitute. And she has uh, an encounter with him. She has sexual relations with him, and it produces children. The results of, those, of that encounter, or those, the, the children, actually uh, are twins. And there's a really uh, wonderful passage here, as a matter of fact, but I'll take you to that in a minute. Uh, she pretends to be a prostitute, tricks Judah, her father-in-law, into having sexual intercourse with her, and she bears twins who are eventually part of the ancestry of Judah. Let's go, since we always like to take a look at some of these interesting passages, let's go back to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, and I told you the essence of the story from Genesis 38, and if you'd like to read it yourself, certainly you may do that. But the ending of Genesis 38 is you know, some details that we often wonder why they're in Scripture. I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer all that, but Genesis 38, we get to verse 27. It's now time for the birth of these children, the twins. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in Tamar's womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, this one came out first. So, I guess, to mark them to make sure that we knew which one is born first, because this is important now. This is going to be important, because the one is going to get the inheritance. So, we don't have, I guess, the most uh, efficient birth here, but we see a hand first. So, the midwife ties, uh, and she probably had that, you know, the... the uh, thread there to mark the one that's born first. And so she ties the thread around the hand, saying this one came out first. Verse 29, Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through? And of course, that's when he gets his name, Perez. This breach be upon you. Therefore, his name was Perez. And then afterwards, his brother, who has the scarlet thread tied on, uh, had the scarlet thorn in his hand, was born, and his name is Zerah. And so we see that the birth of these children is just sort of an, an, a unique situation, but Perez is the one that's born first. And Perez is the one that's now mentioned in our passage. So you can see how important this was. The importance of this birth, and again, Onan knew this. He knew that the, whoever was going to be born from Tamar is the one who's going to really be in the line and that's what we have. Uh, actually, and of course there's all kinds of things that could be said here, Zerah looked like he was going to be born first, but he ends up not being born. Apparently it was a little cold out. You know, oh, not going out there. So he is born second, but Perez is born first. And so it says, may your house be like the house of Perez. Perez is the result of what we could say incest here, of the... Uh, of what Judah thought was going to be just an encounter with a a uh, a prostitute, but it ends up being a very vital part of history. And if we could go to uh, Judah's uh, genealogies uh, in Numbers and a few other places, and Perez is always mentioned, Perez and then his sons. So we can see that this is important. Perez's descendants will play probably, and I can say without doubt, will, the most significant, they are going to play the most significant role in Israel's history. And he is mentioned here. So Perez is mentioned here because we're going to get to Judah, and we've seen in Joshua the importance of the tribe of Judah. And so Perez now is in the line, and he is in the official line. He's not just a son, a son. He is going to be. He ends up being the son. He's the first of all. For he's uh, there's going to be at least two reasons here that he plays a significant role. First of all, he is the ancestor of Boaz's clan, because now Perez is going to be down the line from Boaz. He's in Boaz's line, so Perez playing this important role. He is the ancestor of Boaz's clan. And secondly, he was born to Tamar by a surrogate father, Judah. So we're now beginning to see the parallels here. 
So first of all, he is the ancestor of Boaz. And secondly, he's born to Tamar by a surrogate father, Judah, after the death of her husband. Her husband dies and Judah becomes a surrogate father. So what do we have here? And I think the point that's being made is a comparison between Ruth and Tamar. That's what we have. Although we don't have... Yes, we do have Tamar's name here. We have Tamar's name, and so Tamar's name, and so that's the comparison. But the comparison is not the character or the manner in which they conceived. That's not the point. In other words, Tamar's incestuous relationship here is not being emphasized. That's set aside. But the common leveret nature of their situation, we have a similar situation. And it's just interesting that it's in the same family line. Now, there may have been other... Uh, Leverett uh, illustrations in the family lines, but it's interesting that we have it here between Perez and Tamar, and then not that distant, although we'll see the distance that's there, we again see Boaz and Ruth. So that what we have here is through Tamar, whose husband had died, died childless, Judah had fathered Perez, who has a long line of descendants to include Boaz. Now, through Ruth, whose husband had died childless, Boaz may, we haven't seen it yet, although it's going to happen, may father a son who will also carry on the same prodigy in the, in the same manner that, Ju, that Judah lives on in his. So we're going to see this continual line. I think that's interesting. So the incest of Tamar and Judah is not being praised. But I think what we can see here, I think there, that what is also, or at least a principle that we can see here, is that God can take any situation and probably, uh, and not probably, and cause it to turn out in a way that we would simply not expect it to. We see that the Lord, we see that in this situation, uh, Tamar, was blessed with twins. Now, I don't think she's being blessed because of the way she went about this. But we see things working out in ways that we don't always appreciate. If God blessed Judah and Tamar with twins, and Judah was blessed through Perez, then how much more will Boaz and Ruth be blessed as two people known for their honor and faithfulness? So there is, I think, a relationship here. And we see that God is the one providing the blessing. God provides the blessing. God will establish a name and a house from Boaz and Ruth far greater than Judah and Perez. So the results of uh, Judah and Tamar's union is Perez. And until I read the name today, we probably, no one's ever heard of it. So the results of that union are important, but the results of Boaz and Tamar, or Boaz and Ruth, is going to be down the line David. And so this is sort of that significance I think that we see here. And then, as I said, the last point I'll make here is that Ruth is no longer a shifka. She's no longer a shifka. She's no longer a maidservant. And we've seen her referred to as a maidservant in 2.13. She uses that word of herself. In 2.13 she says, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and have spoken kindly. You've spoken to my heart, to your maidservant. And that she refers to herself as a maidservant. She was also referred to as an ama by Naomi in 3... Well, she's referred to that in 3.9. 3.9, she says, let's see, your maidservant. So she talks about herself as a maidservant in 3.9. And then she is now referred to as a, na, a na'ara. And that word is na'ara. And it simply means a young woman. This is the, it's the uh, parallel to the word used of the young man that works for Boaz. There was a young man, we called him the foreman. But now she is a, just a young woman. So, God has wrought, what we would say, remarkable changes in her life. She is a Moabitess, 
living in Moab with probably, you know, a normal life of a Moabitess ahead of her. But we have a family that moves from Israel to Moab. And they probably move there inappropriately. They want to get out from underneath the discipline of the Lord. And so they go to Moab. And while they're there, they do, they again really violate the law of God by intermarrying with the Moabites, something that was absolutely prohibited. But Ruth, you know, now changes her family from being part of a Moabitess clan family to that of being part of an Israelite family. And her husband, of course, doesn't bear any children. Well, why? Well, very providentially, God is not allowing that to occur. So that she later would be able to demonstrate her character to Naomi when Naomi says, that's it, I'm out of here, I'm leaving, I'm going home, the Lord has removed my husband, he's removed my sons, I have nothing. Go home, Ruth. And Ruth says, no. I've made a commitment when I married, not only to my husband, but a commitment to you and the family. And so I'm staying. And so she does, and she comes back to Israel. She comes back to Bethlehem. And now, you know, she doesn't come back to Bethlehem and demand anything. She doesn't say, well, this land or this property, I think, belongs to me. No, she simply goes out and goes to work very in a very humble way. She even asks, requests, may I work here, even though it really, in, Israel, in uh, Israel's law, was her right to work, uh, following the reapers uh, as a gleaner. But the Lord brings her in contact with Boaz, who I believe is a single man. And Boaz, of course, this is a wonderful history, is right in the line of Judah and Perez and Tamar. And again, uh, Ruth has no uh, inclination that this is going to happen, and nor does she promote herself in this way. But it all simply works. And this is God's hand working in the life of Ruth. And so I think you know, that we can see this very easily in our lives. Uh, God has a plan for our lives. And it may seem that we have you know, very little to do or there's very, uh, the future is you know, uh, not grim, but there's not much of a future ahead of us. But God can take uh, what is insignificant or almost nothing and make some remarkable changes. And He does in all of our lives. And that's what we see in Ruth. She has progressed from the beginning of this chapter as being really, or beginning of this book as being nobody. And when we get down to the end of the book, here she is, now married to Boaz. And we're going to see next week as we begin verse 13 that Boaz, in fact, is going to fulfill his promise to Ruth. He's going to marry her. They are going to have children. And the children, the results of that union, are going to be Uh, play an incredible role in Israel's history. Because the last word, the last, and I think the the writer is, you know, just uh, a brilliant writer. He doesn't, doesn't build it up. He doesn't say then, you know, somewhere in the middle of this chapter, David, and then talk about David and how it's very significant. Because he, he doesn't need to do that. He goes through the entire chapter and the very last word is David. And David can arguably be thought of as probably maybe behind Moses, but maybe equal with Moses, probably one of the most well-known of all the characters of the Old Testament. I mean, who could almost who could be more well-known than David? And David's going to have a very significant future with Israel as well, as we know. So next week we'll come back. We'll pick up verse 13 and work that right down to the last word of the book of Ruth, David. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have the uh, inspired Word of God that has been preserved for us. And here in this very small, what may be seen as a rather insignificant book of Ruth, we see so many wonderful principles. We see truly your hand, your provision, the way that you work things in history. 
And all of this is not just occurring or didn't just occur uh, these many years ago, but it continues to occur today in our lives. And it's simply a matter of us focusing on you, understanding who and what you are, and the fact that you do have a plan for our lives. We are not just aimlessly wandering through life and that death is somewhere ahead of us. And it's not that we have to make the most of our life on earth because you have a plan. That is designed to make the most of life for us. And what you make for us is infinitely superior to anything that we could make for ourselves. And at the end of our lives, there's probably a final word. And hopefully that word, Father, written by you, will be the word that you had planned to be said about us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.